on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I felt like I would be in situations again and again. And like it would be different people, it, it would be a different place, but the underlying structure of the situation was the same. And if I acted in a certain way in the situation, I would have to do it again. And if I made a different choice, I could advance forward. Mm. And so it was sort of like deja vu, synchronicity and cycles. And I think that's kind of what woke up at that time is that there's this, there was this perception that life was somewhat cyclical or spiralic mm. and not just in the overt sense of like the sun comes up and goes down, but also in like some of the themes that come at us in our lives. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Ramon Parrish, an assistant professor in Europa University's Department of Interdisciplinary Studies. Ramon has been synthesizing mindfulness, embodiment, social justice, the environment, and ritual and ceremony for over a decade, and has helped usher hundreds of young people through contemporary threshold experiences. In our conversation today, we explore a dazzling array of themes, including the impact of comics as modern mythologies, the power of healing personal and ancestral trauma through movement, the spiral dynamics of emergence, and how these uncertain times ask that we become riders of chaos. Before we begin, I wish to announce a new offering titled Beyond the Podcast. This will be a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where I will share further on the themes and ideas we have explored. When possible, I will also invite the guests on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast will be available to podcast supporters and all members of the Mythic Masculine Network. Visit themythicmasculine.com to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Ramon Parrish. We begin with a grounding meditation led by Ramon. So just bringing your attention to your breath. And letting your belly relax, be soft. You might uh, rock a bit side to side or back and forth and see that you're nicely planted on your seat. Letting your shoulders relax. Maybe raising your sternum a bit. Noticing the places where your body is making contact with support. Be a chair, be the side of a bed, be the floor. Might even be outside. 
just noticing the weight of your body. Noticing the subtle tug of gravity. Now feeling into your uprightness, noticing your spine. Maybe there's a nice little curve in your the small of your back. Letting your shoulders drop. Softening your jaw. Even that space behind your eyes and sinuses, they often hold tension there. Feeling the crown of your head. Just noticing the rise and the fall of breath. There's no need to change anything. There's nothing to do. Noticing that pull of gravity and that rise of breath. Letting yourself rest in it for a moment. Noticing your breath in the back side of your body. Noticing the front side. Softening the throat.
Noticing the left side, shoulders. Down your arm. On the right side. Coming back into that center line. I'm going to ask you, Ian, and any of our listeners, wherever and whenever you might hear this, uh, to join us in a bow. And this is one of the ways that we open our classes and our meetings at Europa University. And it's not a bow to anyone. It's not a bow to anything. It's it's an offering of our heart and attention. So, on the count of three, one, two, bowing. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ramon, for inviting us into such a spacious groundedness in order to to have our conversation today. Absolutely. I love to begin my conversations by asking the guests to share a little of where they are now in this moment, uh, geographically, spiritually, anything that that feels called to be shared. Okay. Yeah, so um, I'm currently on the front range of Colorado, right? Sort of uh, east of the Rocky Mountains, um, between Denver and Boulder, Colorado, approximately. And, you know, this is, you know, the traditional historical land of the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, the Ute. Some people say the Apache, you know, and like a lot of places in the United States, we have streets, we have Arapaho Boulevard and so on. Um, so just want to kind of put that out there and, um, we just got a huge snow, like two feet of snow. So I'm kind of looking out the window at, you know, white landscape and, um, yeah. And as far as where I am, you know, I grew up in Colorado, grew up in Denver, grew up in Aurora, lived in the mountains for a little while. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm at home. I'm, I don't teach classes today, so it's kind of a work day or meeting day or, you know, restoration day. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's kind of, that's kind of where I would start. Mm. Mm. Thank you. I'm very excited for our conversation today because I feel like so much of your, uh, your journey and your work actually – threads a lot of the themes that we touch on actually in this podcast. Uh, certainly, you know, we, we approach conversations on masculinity uh, and, and mythology. Uh, and at the same time, there's rites of passage, there's poetry, there's uh, culture, you know, so many, so many elements that seem, again, as I did the research, uh, that you've, you've explored, um, worked in, and beyond. So, oh, embodiment, of course, is another and so 
I'd love to get to most of it in our conversation today. And perhaps to to begin to ask a little bit more of your upbringing and what was it in your youth or who did you look to for your models of masculinity as you were Mm. growing up? Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of gets right at the the heart of it. Um, You know, my parents separated when I was really young. I was three. And so I never, I did growing up, I didn't meet my father. You know, so just to kind of put that out there, just like this sort of standard place of the father as the kind of grown man, male figure in your life out of there. And, you know, I had two brothers, three sisters, I had an older brother and a younger brother. And, you know, my brothers and I, we got down, you know, we, we hung out in our basement and we, we drew comic books and we made, you know, rocket ships and battering rams out of cardboard and you know we played action figures and you know we had a good time a good time as a young child um and you know my mother was a was is a is a you know religious born again christian woman and one of the things she would tell us from early age is well she told us a lot of stories about my dad right Um, but she was like, God's your father, you know, like in the sense of who is playing the role of the provider in the family, like who's creating these opportunities for me to like, like the way that we get over every month is a miracle in other words. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then I think, I think in terms of like tangible people, you know, yeah. So I was in middle school and I had, I had a couple of teachers. I had a history teacher, uh, Jim Blanis. He was, he was, he was a great guy. And, uh, he was really a philosophy teacher in disguise. And he, he mm-hmm. kind of gave us a lot of the rudiments of like kind of Western philosophical thinking in disguise, like in a way that middle schoolers could deal with it. And he was also open and he would listen to us and he'd stayed after class and they'd talk with us and, and he just really, he had the trust of, of a certain number of students. And, uh, you know, and I was kind of like, uh, I was a mischievous kid in a way, you know? Yeah. I was like the nicest of the, the mischievous kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I had a lot, some teachers and, you know, I also had another, uh, teacher, um, JC Pichard and, you know, I went to a private school. It was predominantly white school, um, Pichard was one of the only black teachers in the school. And, uh, you know, he sported dreadlocks, like little short dreads. And I just kind of unconsciously modeled myself after him after a certain point. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I started to grow some dreads. And then I'm listening to Bob Marley. And then, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> then you start going away from the actual people, men in your life, to like the sort mm-hmm. of like popular culture figures who are embodying certain types of masculinity. So I got, I got, I was influenced by the Rastafari movement, like in my youth. And of course, like, you know, I was listening to classic rock. I was listening to hip hop. And so all the various like figures Mm -hmm. that were projected through that, um, all kind of, you know, imprinted themselves. And then, you know, truth be told, I was a big comic book fan until I was like 18, man. I was reading these comic books. Like, I was into these stories. And I was into them as, like, modern mythologies. 
And even that, like the ridiculous, unattainable masculinities that get projected through that. So that, that all went in the subconscious too. Hmm. I'm curious, which comics were the ones that stood out for you? Uh, my favorite was the X-Men. Mm, nice. <laughs> I, I like the X-Men. We, you know, my, my brother and I, my older brother, and I also cite my older brother as, as one of my role models growing up. He, he somehow or another was always, a, he was taller than me the entire time, and he still is. And he was tall enough to like, even, you know, we were 10 years old and he seemed bigger. He seemed like, you know. So, you know, my older brother and I would stay up. We stay up to four in the morning just discussing the politics of X Men. <laughs> you know, Professor X is he's, he's Martin Luther King, and Magneto is Malcolm X, and the mutants are black people, or what? Well, just like the whole, you know, wow. we're, we're trying to we're trying to help society, and it hates us. That whole, yeah, wow. really was into that yeah. that storyline and um, a lot of the characters there. Wow, you know, it makes me think right off the bat, the power of story. And, you know, I have another teacher, um, fellow named Stephen Jenkinson, who, you know, he said one time that uh, there's no story in an argument and there's no argument in a story. So you can keep them apart. And I think he was making a comment that, you know, when somebody makes an argument or says, you know, this and that or for and against, it's like, you know, you can, you can be in opposition to it, but a story is a story, you know? It's like, it, it's, it's a prism in a way. And so I see in what you're saying that, you know, the ability to, to look through story, in this case, the universe of the X-Men, and to, to find insight into, you know, your situation or how you saw the world or what was meaningful. And I just really, I'm really struck by that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, right. A story is just kind of, it's like, can you just go along with it? And, and if you can go along with it, then, you know, it takes you somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, as I, as I got older, I got into philosophy. I got to a point where I couldn't read, I couldn't read fiction. Mm. I couldn't, you know, I, I, I just wanted the theory. Just give me, just, you know, even if I was reading fiction, I would just go to the part where they like really hit you with the lesson. And that, that was all, mm. all I wanted. At a certain point, I just wanted like the quote unquote truth, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, you know, that changes obviously over time too. Yeah. Well, I read in a, in a previous interview that I looked up, um, you said you had a poetry phase. And so I wonder if you could speak a little to that as well. Yeah. So it started senior year of high school. Uh, I did a project and my project was I was I was researching postmodern poetry hmm. and I was supposed to write some. And I, I didn't know what it meant at that time. And I'm not sure I know what it means now. But uh, I started to look into, um, I was looking into the beats. I was looking into Mary Baraka. Uh, I was looking into Jim Morrison. One of my buddies gave me the, the album American Prayer. And I was just like, that just took me out of high school and into college, basically. <laughs> and I was looking at a lot of slam poetry, like from the New York and Poets Cafe, and then I was riding around cars with, with, with my buddies being crazy and, you know, trying to have encounters with the world. And I found that I was trying to document my experience basically, um, through, through, through poetry. And, and I was also interested, I was studying like, you know, different art movements, looking into surrealism. And I kind of got into like, 
some of the practices they had there as far as like automatic writing. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how free this podcast is, how free I am to talk uh, honestly about my experiences. Please do. But, you know, I was also doing what a lot of kids are doing in the 90s and the 70s and the 50s and the 2010s. And now I I was partying a lot and Mm -hmm. I was exposing my system to a lot of different chemicals. And I was having experiences that were um, that I had no words for. And I could, the only way I could make sense of them without them driving me crazy was to try to write and, and describe and bring combinations of words together that, that kind of, uh, yeah, spoke to them. Hmm. And so, so sometimes it was like I was trying to kind of recording inner narrations or inner pictures, series, and other times I was just automatically it was just automatic writing. And then I would just see what came out. And over time, um, you know, of course, most of it was garbage, Mm -hmm. but over time I started to, um, notice like the rhythmic quality and the types of images that like the inner, my inner voice would, would use. And, um, and then, and then it got to the point where it wasn't even about the party. And it was, it, it was like, I started to make a practice out of writing and I would go home, you know, after class or I would go home after I would, had been out and I would just sit down and, and I kind of got disciplined about it. Hmm. And, um, and then it started to open up things. It started to open up my dream life. Um, it started to open up the the imaginal realm it started to and then and then weird stuff started to happen where i started to find synchronicities between the things that would come up in the poetry and the things that were in my actual experiences like the poetry would somewhat predict the experience it wasn't just like i was documenting mm. what had happened through poetry it was like i would write about certain themes and it's really abstract and kind of hard to explain, but then I would just like have these encounters with people and I'd be like, what is going on mm. here? Wow. You know? And how do you explain that phenomenon? Uh, I mean, synchronicity, uh, some people have heard it, you know, and I believe it was actually Carl Jung, right? Who coined the term. Um, but it, in some sense, you know, people might say serendipity or, or, you know, there's other words that are kind of there. But for me, you know, I've, uh, I heard this other quote sort of attributed to, uh, say maybe a pan indigenous understanding, but it was like, if you're not living your life in syn- synchronistic fashion, like if synchronicities aren't happening, they'll they'll kind of be like, "Ooh, what's wrong?" You know, like it's sort of the the opposite to maybe the modern world where it's kind of like, if it starts happening, it's like weird. Whereas you know, a different understanding, a connected place, that's actually pretty normal in a sense. Quote um, anyway, but I'm curious if that's how it started to feel to you of, of a kind of baseline relationality with existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say at this point in my life it is, and that I would say the synchronicities are more spaced out, like between each happenstance, mm. and that they're softer. But I think that in my earlier days, when I was really kind of into writing during the poetry phase, mm. there was like a, there, it was like a turbulence. It was like a on ramp, mm. and they just kind of really had to come at me hard in order to get my attention. And, you know, I, I also had a lot of questions at that time, too. It was like I was running a couple of tracks of inquiry. Mm. I was running the philosophical track where I was really trying to, like, 
you know, I'm reading existentialist philosophers, I'm reading ancient philosophers, and I'm trying to like, what is the truth, mm-hmm. the truth? And then there was another track of like working with imagination and working with, you know, honestly, biochemistry and trying to like induce visionary states. Mm. And then the last track was just observing my experience and being in the natural world more. And I, I also developed with practice of just watching the moon and just checking in with the moon on a regular basis. And I guess I feel like what I started to find was I felt like I would be in situations again and again. And like, it would be different people. It, it would be a different place, but the underlying structure of the situation was the same. Mm-hmm. And if I acted in a certain way in the situation, I would have to do it again. And if I made a different choice, I could advance forward. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like deja vu, synchronicity and cycles. And I think that's kind of what woke up at that time is that there's this, there was this perception that life was somewhat cyclical or spiralic. And not just in the overt sense of like the sun comes up and goes down, but also in like some of the themes that come at us in our lives, you know. Love this. I'm curious where the themes of rites of passage or embodiment came in, you know, which came first, because uh, I understand these are also have become sort of pillars in your in your life experience. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I, I kind of took up guys like say like Jim Morrison's like adventure, like take up this adventure of consciousness. Mm. And I just sort of did it as an 18 year old, like naively. And, and then I actually had experiences, internal experiences and private experiences, but also like moving it through the world experiences of discovery. And I think part of this is just youth. It just happens. And I feel like I had these breakthroughs and but I didn't have that many people that I could share them with. And as I graduated from college, you know, I, part of that whole set of experiences was I met my wife, the person that would become my life partner, uh, through crazy synchronicities, through like (laughs) the hall of mirror of choices and wrong choices and right choices. Mm. And we, we started, a family. We just kind of went with it. And we had a friend from college uh, who was a dance and religion. He was a dual dance and religion major. And he had started to go, we went to Colorado college in the Springs and he had started to go from Colorado Springs to Boulder. And he started to dance with this woman, Melissa Michaels. And she, you know, is an embodiment teacher, and and I would really say a kind of spiritual educator who works through the body and expressive arts. And so then my, my wife, Michelle, got wrapped up with working with Melissa. And I at that time we had a we had a we had a one-year-old daughter. Mm. And so I'm like outside of the place where they're dancing. And I'm just listening to people like go for it. I'm listening to drums go off. I'm listening to people scream. People come out, they're in tears. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't, I don't understand this. I had no context for it. The only dancing I had done is like in the dark, right? In smoky rooms. Mm. And even that was very small and contained and hidden. And so we stayed in contact with Melissa for a few years and she eventually, and I had actually at this point, I had started into 
you know, you know, sort of back backing my way into being an educator. And, you know, and I had a toddler who just completely reorganized my nervous system. You know, I thought I was cool. I was a college student. (laughs) I thought I was enlightened. I thought I was chill. And then it was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to handle this girl. I don't know how to handle the emotional volume that Mm -hmm. she brought into my life. Mm -hmm. And then I was working with boys who were, most of them were English as second language, you know, you know, from Spanish speaking families, they had a feeling that they were, you know, they called themselves retards. Mm. And, and there was a lot of anger in this, in these rooms I was working with these kids with. And so suddenly I had spent a lot of time on my head, a lot of time, my imagination and the family life and the work life was bringing me down. It was bringing me down first. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was bringing me into my, my heart in a way that I, I wasn't prepared for. And so, you know, one year Melissa said, hey, we're doing a training for working adults. You know, it's spaced out over a year because the one that Michelle had done was in the summertime. And she said, are you interested? Mm. Typically, she had been voiced to Michelle. And I was like, sure, something had changed. And so I went in and there's this beautiful building in the hills of Boulder called the Star House. And it's kind of this like... Uh, it's like a mixture of an astrological temple and a log cabin, if that just helps your visual. Wow. <laughs> and so I'm up here in this room, and I mean, I'm just going to be just totally frank. I'm mostly in a room with women and mostly in a room with white people. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I started to, she started to give us these instructions about like just paying attention to different parts of our body and working with it through movement. And within 20 minutes, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so it was really working with Melissa Michaels and her Somasaurus program or the, the, the Surfing the Creative is the name of the Summer Rites of Passage program that that's really what I would say initiated me into this larger conversation about Rites of Passage. I'd have my own sort of private and personal unfoldings, mm. but in terms of bringing those into a community and learning the sort of language of, of rites of passage and of um, life developmental sequences and phases and rites of passage as like something that continues throughout a lifetime. You know, as far as this whole language around, you know, working intergenerationally, mm. that was my it kind of initiation into that. Mm. Mm. Wow, quite a story. I um, should mention as well, I have a two and a half year old son as well so your description of uh just the enormity and the the i think you said the the reorientation of your nervous system is very accurate um so i actually appreciate you know hearing hearing it spoken in that way um and this call to embodiment i hear in what you're saying as well that you know the 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 kind of overemphasis on the mind or the the rational intellectual imaginal realm even yeah and how that can really uh mean one one like hovers above you know, and and I'm I'm actually thinking of the image. I think Robert Bly talks about Nair and John of the, you know, like the Peter Pan or the Flyboy or the 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 one that Puer I think right is Puer yeah yeah of this kind of up in the clouds and and this noble intent of yeah finding the truth and all that from that uh from that orientation, and yet I think what's coming to to light now um in in a lot of ways is especially this 
um, need to emphasize the body or to, to embody the, the wisdom or to embody the, I don't know if it would be called truth, but I hear that in what you're saying. I would love for you to also speak a little about what do you, what did you begin to notice like within these two worlds? You know, like you, especially for men as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you spoke about being, you know, in a room with mostly women, mostly white women, you know, and, and here you are. And like, what did you begin to notice by sort of being in these, in these spaces that also that men could take away? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that, that one of the, the, the way that surfing the creative was set up is it was sort of a journey from birth to youth. It was like a recounting of that journey. Right. And, you know, at some point you touch adolescence and every time I would get to the adolescent period, I just, it was just so painful that I tried to steer around it. Hmm. And I think part of what happened is, you know, I went to these private schools, pretty much white private schools. And that was a big piece of my disembodiment. I, I just, I became alienated from myself. Hmm. You know, I became numb to myself. I, I became intellectual because it was too hard to feel the loneliness and honestly just the flat out like racist ignorance of, of my classmates. And so I abstracted myself and I was prone to do that anyway. I mean, I've, I'm, I've been a dreamer since day one. Mm. Um, Colorado skies, man, the big skies out here, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I think here's another one that I think I only start to notice when I have my own kids I, you know, I was very physical with my kids, more so than the kid's mother. And I don't necessarily see that as like a definite thing that dad is going to be more physical with the kids. But I think that there are cultural tracks for that already. Mm. And, you know, my dad was, uh, he, he played, played pro football. And that's a whole other story. But that had something to do with how they, we got split off. And... And so I realized that I didn't have anyone in my life at a young age that was physical with me. Mm. And even amongst my brothers, I was already the kid who had his head in the books or was drawing. You know, I wasn't out there with a football. And so I think just from an early age and then heightened in high school or middle school, I just became abstracted from myself. And so as I got into these rooms and we had our attention directed through movement to all of these, the different parts of the body, you know, the idea in a lot of somatic psychology is that the body stores memory and it stores trauma. And, you know, and now we're finding that not only does the body store its own trauma, but it actually stores, and people have known this for a long time, it actually stores generational trauma. And so we got to a certain point and, you know, we utilized Gabriella Roth's five rhythms structure. And when we would get to the chaos part of it, I would go into rages. And, and, I, and, 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 and this is my subjective perspective. This is not necessarily the truth. But I did not believe that that room was prepared to deal with the kind of rage that we, I think a lot of black folks experience housing our bodies and then men in particular. Mm. 
And so they had to create a lot of new, they had to, they had to shore up certain practices just in order to kind of deal with me. And then soon after I was in these spaces, we started to actually uh, make connections with other communities around the country and around the world. And so our rooms actually got more diverse. Mm. We had, you know, you know, black folks from Baltimore and black folks from South Africa and Israelis and Palestinians, you know, wow. and people from Oroville all in one room. And, 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 and this is a thing. It's, it's like, on the one hand, the body is a universal, it's like our, it's like what we all share. We all have similar structure, mm-hmm. but, but we are all also carrying different cultural traumas, lineages, and genius through the body. And we have different ways of moving. And so I started to notice on the one hand, the universality, you know, fear, excitement, sadness, anger, you know, joy, serenity. And on the other hand, I started to really see the specific stuff that I was carrying both in my own life and also just like ancestral thunderstorms Mm. and, 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 and learning like how much of it, learning how to titrate because it's like when you actually try to bring all that through, I had times I almost ripped my arms out of my sockets, you know, of just, it was just, I would get into my own and then I could, I could go all the way back. Mm. So, yeah. And I think that really, I think one of the biggest things I learned there was just like actually how to start the process of working with and acknowledging anger. Mm. I wasn't comfortable with anger. Um, I wasn't comfortable, obviously, with grief, but I was a little bit more acquainted with grief than I was with anger. Mm. Yeah. So much in there. Yeah. Thank you. What I'm thinking of is how important this layer is, particularly around uh, this understanding of, uh, or this frame of toxic masculinity, you know, because to be honest, you know, I've found it challenging, and others have pointed this out too, that in some ways, Toxic masculinity could be seen as symptomatic of essentially, you know, I hear this like unprocessed anger, unprocessed grief, all this stuff that unless it's approached from that level of understanding, this is what I feel in my uncovery process is that it feels like it's still dealing with the symptoms, you know, and and I've been in spaces, particularly men's spaces, I'm thinking of uh, another group, Sacred Sons, you know, based in California, I was at one of their convergences, and I was really struck in their they call it like carpet work, right? A little bit like mankind project style process, but a lot more focus on uh, bioenergetics, you know, a lot more focus on just the following of energy, giving it expression uh, in a container with lots of other men where there was uh, pretty much with every guy. Yeah. Such a level of either anger, you know, or sadness, grief that, that would come forth um, at a level, which one had me, you know, I've been in that, that kind of space before too. So it wasn't a, as a, it wasn't a surprise, but for me, it was really profound to see like the level of containers that was needed to really move that energy, to move that um, that stuckness, right? And and then the profound serenity that seemed to emerge on the other side of it, you know, was so clear to me. I was like, oh, you know, talking about this stuff really only gets you so far. Yeah, you know? yeah. And and how this deep need to come back to this body's intelligence, 
in the right containers, in the right um, um, you know, invitations is so vital. And, and I hear you speaking about the experience, particularly for you as a black man and, and for men in general as well, feel like it's still not quite as prominent, I think, as it needs to be, you know, to really begin to, to shift um, what needs to, you know, in order to create a, a, a new culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about like the mosh pit, you know, like kids get together and they, they, they kind of beat each other up in a controlled way, <laughs> you know, and it has a certain yeah. ethics to it. And, 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 and at a certain point we did that kind of stuff where it was like, it was like, okay, like, like everybody between this age, like all the men between uh, 21 and 28 in the center. And then we were just, wow, you know, all the men between 28 and 36, all the men between 36 and 45 and like, and just move it, you know? And, 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 and we learned too. okay, go 75%, go 50%, mm-hmm. go 25%, like, and to, to like space it and even, even a partial expression of it, you know, mm-hmm. was enough to unwind the energy in a lot of cases. So, I, yeah, I definitely, you definitely can't just talk about it. And, and I mean, the bodies get, our bodies get full of these feelings. They get full of them. And unless we, and I think this was, this was, this was so necessary for me before I could even get into, say, sitting meditation. Mm. I could not sit in my 20s. I had to, I had to go through so many cycles of, the, of this kind of full emotional process. And this full embodiment and expression and moving out of emotion. And afterwards, you do it a bunch. It's like a storm. And after the storm goes, the ground's clean. The skies were fresh and like scintillating. And occasionally you get a rainbow, you know? And so I think there's just so many men that there's like, on the one hand, it's like being angry is a safe emotion. You can walk around the world and be pissed. Mm. And on the other hand, you can't really be pissed. You can't really show it. You can't really go all the way through with it. And you can't understand it a lot of times as a form of tenderness. You know, when, when, and it's like, so, so I think, and I think because men have done so much violence and we do so much violence and we organize and we strategize to slingshot anger at one another and slingshot anger at women, and slingshot anger at gender nonconforming people. And we've done it for centuries. People are like, no more of that. And yet, you know, we need places where we can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and we need places where people understand that it's, it's actually like in a mosh pit. Like you walk out, not that I ever did it. I just, I'm secondhand <laughs> in here. Never did that. I was never part of those scenes. But you walk out and you're, and you're kind of, people are happy and they're like, and you got a bloody nose. You know, so I'm not saying we need to do that, but I think that's what happens. You know, this is a lot what we talk about in these, you know, rites of passage discourses is that, you know, when young people, don't have elders to help them hold those these fields of initiatory intensity mm-hmm. they start making up their own with more or less success mm-hmm. yeah thanks for that link there you know i have this 
image, or I've come to understand this image of the elder as a sort of, as like a, a grounding uh, function or a, like a old growth trees, you know, in a diverse ecosystem that, that what becomes possible, what kind of energy can be alchemized within spaces becomes so much more possible. And, you know, when I've been in group process where I've say been facilitating transformation or whatever it is, and I've got some elders there, you know, I'm like, okay, we got this. You know, like there's a sense like whatever comes up, you know, that, that the group field can hold because there's this gravity that is held by, by the elders. And without them, yeah, it feels way more precarious to open up right. these spaces, you know, to open up these uh, those deep wounds or this, you know, ancestral storms, like you say, and and not be able to contain them actually in the space because because we don't have them. So it's a really kind of tricky moment too, you know, because I do feel that the the there's not as many as I would love to have, you know, available. Let's say to to serve the elder function, you know, in the culture at this time, because you know they themselves haven't lived in such a way to even know what to do, you know, mm-hmm. at the time and in those moments. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, a lot of this stuff is still countercultural. You know, it still hasn't hit the mainstream, and you know, I think also this is another thing that 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 I'm interested in the the study of generational cohorts you know uh the boomers I, i've got a son he's he's uh at this point he's 16 and he calls me a boomer ah, it pisses me <laughs> off I'm like please stop it you're you're just yeah i'm i'm generation x man you know yeah <laughs> but like i think i think that that like even okay so, so even in the countercultures right and like you think of like Bly and those those guys, like that first generation of men's movement, um, you know, they had to find spaces to work with anger because the larger counterculture wasn't really working with anger. I mean, mm. you, people were expressing it, but they weren't turning towards it consciously and then spinning it all the way out, mm. you know, and they weren't honoring it. They were just, hey, it's just there, I'm pissed off, you know, F the government or whatever, you mm. know? Mm-hmm. And I think the ethos of of like a lot of the the musicians and artists and revolutionaries of the boomers generation wasn't a conscious working with anger. Whereas I feel like the generation X was consciously working with anger. And if we look at like two of the biggest musical movements of Generation X, it's it's hip hop and it's punk music. Mm, yeah. You know, and maybe heavy metal. Let's throw heavy metal up in there too. You know, were places where it was like the, the 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 central emotion that we are dealing with is rage, and so I actually think Generation X knows a lot about that. I think a lot of the people, male, female, and then let's even get Riot Girl in there. A lot of our generation knows about that, and I feel like if we can make that knowledge, that being steeped in rage, conscious, and practiced. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm getting to the second half of life. And I really see, and especially working with young people, college-age students, I see. I'm like, oh, I'm not a youth anymore. Like, psychologically, I'm yeah. not in that place anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I got, I, I'm an adult because we can't skip over adulthood for elderhood. There's different functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's really the turn is more towards offering and holding space. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, then this is another one is, you know, I got teenage kids. They're all teenagers now. 
And I think this generation is dealing with anxiety and grief to a degree that I think Gen X and the millennials, the millennials for sure, but man, the Gen Z kids, the kids coming up, there's just, because they know and they're seeing, they're seeing climate change unfold in real time. Mm-hmm. We had the fires this summer in Colorado. It was rain and ashes here, snowing ashes. I've lived here for 40 years. I've never seen that. You know, COVID smacked them. And yeah. so they're just, they're, and if you look at those, say, let's say the rap and trap music they're making, it's a sadder kind of rap than the, what we listen to. Yeah. I'm really appreciating you, you make that link as well, because, you know, I actually hadn't uh, paid attention to much of the pop music, I guess, you know, more popular with the younger generations, uh, particularly, and I think the Grammys maybe a year or two ago and Billie Eilish or Eilish, right. Had, you know, and she was quite big at the time and I just never really tuned in. And then when I went and tuned into her music, I was like, whoa, Mm -hmm. it carries that vibe that you're talking about right now. Almost this like, it's almost like so gone to not care while while still pointing at what caring might even look like in some sense. But it's so, you know what I'm saying? It's so um, self-aware of a kind of apocalyptic, what's the point? Do you know? Yes. And it's, yeah, and it's really difficult for older generations to understand that level of, yeah, coming of age within that kind of um, clarity. You know, when I was younger too, I was born in 81, so I think I just squeaked into a little millennial, uh, first millennial. But the idea of, you know, climate change and all that was still a vague memory. You know, it kind of was, the ozone was getting depleted a little bit or something. We had to do something about it, you know. But it was not the same as now, where like you're saying, it's real time, it's happening right now. And the the kind of psychological, spiritual consequence of that, you know, mm-hmm. is is is... I mean, it's beyond significant. And so I guess that's my question too, is what is our role in offering some something, you know, to to this? Like, what do you say, you know, to your 16-year-old who's kind of like, what's the point? Like, why go to school, you know, when climate change is basically saying, you know, game over in 15 years or something like that, right? Like, how do you deal with that kind of math that, that it's hard to refute in some ways? Mm. Yeah. So I, I think we're in a real real rethink and real struggle in, in education right now and in higher education, hmm. right? That's where I'm, I'm located. And I think one of the, yeah, cause there is this sense of like, I'm going to graduate first of all, with enormous debt and the world that we're being trained for is really, really falling apart. And I mean, th- we've been in this historical moment since the baby boomer generation, mm-hmm. But it has now reached the level of criticality to where like we can we are watching climate change unfold in real time. And of course, climate change has human consequences as well as ecological consequences. And actually, human beings are the drivers. So if we're exhausting the planet, we got to be exhausted. You know, and you can see it in the classrooms. Kids are exhausted. But I think I think one of the things that that the university can do and also I think the school does, period, is it creates social context. Mm. You know, if we don't have to be together the way that the world is going, we won't be together. Do you know what I'm saying? Like like now it's now now we got this whole Zoom space opened up. And it's great on a certain level, allows you and I to have this conversation, blah, blah, blah. But you know, in a few years, you got, you're, you're going to have your delivery trucks will be r- remote controlled. 
You can order your food. You can, you got your stream, your, your music, you know, you can order your books, your clothes. You won't even hardly have to deal with people. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that compulsory schooling has done is it's made it so that we still have to deal with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to take advantage of that. Like the community aspect of school and, 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 and the fact that we are going through an experience that's shared. And I think that that is a that's a way that we can start to look at education, particularly at the undergraduate level, I believe, as an initiatory experience. Mm. You know, that that because that's what it was for me between 18 and 23. I had this big breakthrough internally. And then in my later 20s, I was met by people like Melissa that helped me to make a social context and develop practices to bring it out into the world. So I think part of our role as educators is to help the young people go down into the depths or go up into the sky and then come back with something and have it be in a group of people who are going through something similar. And then, and then as far as that relates to the world and changing things in the world, it's like, we got to be pulling from the deep imagination and we have to teach people how to manage chaos, how to ride chaos, you know, and how to just be like, it's going to keep changing. It's going to keep changing. And some part of you has to stay fluid and creative and like even exploit the changes. Mm. Love where we're going with this. You know, a couple of key themes that have come are one, I love the idea of that school is more, or education is more explicitly geared towards offering, a, you know, a social context or a meaning-making context through an initiatory time. Because I do think my understanding of education, at least, you know, when I was going in, and I know some things have changed depending on what we're talking about, was largely it's still about preparing, you know, workers for the workforce, right? And that to me feels less and less, you know, how do you prepare a kid for the workforce that is, is, as you say, is going to be changing or the jobs that were there are gone by the time they get there. So I guess what I'm saying is the emphasis on a kind of book learning education, if you know if I just sort of say it that way, you know, versus a kind of, like you say, a kind of uh, self-developing, meaning-making, uh, you know, in a previous interview, I heard you mention Bill Plotkin's work, um, who I've also interviewed on the podcast. And so, yeah, some sense of like really bringing forth their mythopoetic identity you know, their sense of service to this time, that that would actually be a useful, you know, thing to undergo within a shared uh, context that school perhaps could transform into something like that, you know, which does in a way, mostly, I think, unconsciously, you know, like, because that's just the, how people or how the youth will experiment, you know, but it's not as conscious intentional. And I really, mm -hmm. I really like how you, you brought forth that, that thread. Um, because like you say, Training for the capacity to ride chaos um, is actually a skill that is actually needed. You know, mm -hmm. not preparing for, again, yeah, to be some worker bee. You know, it's like, we don't need that. Um, especially with an economic system that has so clearly tipped its bankruptcy, uh, visible now. And, you know, you also mentioned uh, earlier Sacred Economics, you know, the film I had done with Charles Eisenstein, which tried to reveal the possibility that an economic system could be different. You know, it could value different things. It could enforce or not enforce, it could invite different kinds of behavior, you know, rather than greed and hoarding, it could actually invite other human nature, you know, qualities of human nature, which are just as possible when you're in a system that actually values those things. So, yeah, I see that they're, they're codependent, you know, arising as sort of, 
you know, this image I'm getting. Um, and I just really love, you know, to, that we've arrived here, which brings me now to one major thread, which also, you know, my own research into this uh, principle or phenomenon of emergence. And, you know, I've heard you mention as well, and uh, you love to teach an emergent, emergent environment, you know, was mentioned in another interview. And I would just love to get your take on things, you know, because I have my take on what I think emergence is, you know, and, and especially in the context of now and how do we sort of respond to these times. Uh, and I'd love to just, yeah, start there, you know, for you. It's like, what do you understand emergence to be? You know, what serves it? How does it happen? Hmm. Yeah, so, so I feel like in classrooms, typically at least once a week, there's a moment that is surprising. And I would say a couple times every semester, there are transformational moments for one or a group of students or something. There's moments where we have these little breakthroughs. And, you know, I think, I, I think it was Maladoma Somme. I think he was one of the people who I heard articulate this, that a ritual at a certain point has to have some chaos to it. You go in, you set it up, and you sort of know, you sort of know when it's going to begin and maybe you have an idea of when it's going to end. But there's going to be a point in it at which the unknown enters into the, to the space. And that, in fact, it's not a ritual until the unknown enters into the space. Mm. And when we begin our classes at Naropa, this bow thing, you know, and when we're talking about like the mechanics of ritual, you got to have an opening gate and a closing gate. And so this bow thing is how we open the gate and it's how we close the gate. And so I think it starts to set our consciousness as a group to enter into some kind of fluctuating ritual type of space. So I think you kind of know where you're, you, you, you have to have a, a way in. But then once you start to get in, then it really, I think it becomes a part about listening and, and, and just watching for what emerges and what, where the energy is going and where it's calling and where it's stuck. And then I think as we listen and then we bring our attention and we have a willingness to go off track a little bit and to go off script, then I feel like we start to work with the dynamics of emergence. You know, now I'm a bit of a soft believer in like, like, I guess I'm a bit of a, like I'm a bit of a believer that the imagination can prefigure reality. And, and I think that's another reason why you want to tap the deep imagination because the deep imagination can give us pictures of what's possible and not even what's possible, but I would say what's yearning, what is, what the, like the collective is yearning towards. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a sense of what that yearning is, if your imagination is fertilized by these pictures, then when you're in the spaces of emergence, sometimes you see something you're like there it is there that so on the one hand i think we have to be paying attention we have to be listening we have to be receptive towards you know when we're with a group of people or whatever the situation is it could even be the weather with what is presenting itself and on the other hand i think we have to in the backs of our our minds and consciousness we have an expanded field of possibility 
so that when the new shows itself, we know what we're seeing and we, we, we reach for it. You just made me think of, uh, again, in sacred economics, you know, Charles has coined, uh, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, I think is as one example of this sense that, that this, this collective yearning, you know, that is maybe below the surface and maybe a lot don't know how to articulate, but when they sense it, when, when it's present in the room, the, that possibility there, there's a, there's a moving towards it. And I think that's vital. Like you say, that those images are, are there because I do think in, you know, on mass, I'd see uh, a lot of challenge with trying to find, you know, what, what is, what do we want? You know, that, that whole thing. It's like, well, we know what we don't want. I think, you know, we don't want to go that way. Uh, we don't want to cause more destruction. I mean, talking about masculinity, we don't want to create more, you know, domination and trespass and we don't want that. But what, what do we want? You know, like what is that, that, that longing pointing towards, you know, a possibility of, of what could, what could masculinity be? You know, and and for me, this is so much of what this podcast actually does and, and tries to be. You know, that that sense of, you know, some kind of whisper of that possibility, uh, which in some ways brings forth a lot of old, you know, the, uh, older understandings. You know, we had a, a Pat McCabe as an indigenous grandmother who's you know an incredible yeah episode. It sounds like you know her, where she just talked about that. You know, and and offered a prayer for men in her uh in her way and it was just like men are weeping you know by the end of it and when was the last time they got blessed by an indigenous grandmother mm-hmm. you know and and, and so it, it kind of awakens something like you say and and i really like that interface between this working with emergence in that case and in ritual in some ways i see them as interchangeable like you've you've demonstrated and and the ability to like yeah intentionally you know uh prepare in a way for that moment of possibility yeah, and you know, I mean, and I mean, God, look at 2020. Mm. 2020 was, I mean, was, is a year of emergence. I mean, it, it's really, I mean, we just, we just have basically been witness to these collective dramas playing out. I mean, the summer, George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. the, you know, Breonna Taylor's murder, worldwide response to it fire on the streets. I went to the Capitol, downtown Denver, people spray painted all over the Capitol. They had shattered windows. It hurt, it hurt, hurt to see that. I mean, and I'm not even like a guy who believes hard in the system, mm-hmm. but just to see that people are like, you know, we the, these symbols of authority, these, and, and think about it, these capitals, these statues, these are all ritual objects. These are all focal points of our attention at the least, if not actual magical devices. Mm. And people are like, we're destroying those. We're removing those. We are done with that way of doing magic, with that way of organizing consciousness. Like we don't, we no longer respect that authority. And even in their own way, the Trumpers won that too. When they hit the Capitol, they put their feet up on the desk because we are we don't respect this. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to jump all over the place for a second. Please. Another thing that I, I've gotten, another technology that I've been learning over the years is astrology. And, and it started with looking at the moon. It started with Colorado's big skies. And, you know, and you can look at individual patterns and you can look at collective patterns through it. 
And when you look at the collective patterns for this decade, 2020, there's, there's, there are big convergences that are happening this decade. And if you look at 2020, you can read, of course, we can predict what's going to happen because that's the thing I think with emergence, you can have a sense that, oh, here, here comes the moment. Mm -hmm. These two factors are coming together and now you can't tell what they're going to do. You can't tell, you can't map the spiral of transformation. You can just, you just have to go through it or witness it. But you can get a sense of if this factor and this factor come together. Mm -hmm. And so just from that, that astrological perspective as a way to look at our times, you know, this decade is going to be momentous. This is, this is going to be one of the big, you know, things are going to happen very quickly. You know, icebergs are going to fall off the, the continent. And, and I think that coming into this decade with this awareness of almost that ritual emergence awareness, I think the question is really how do we contain it? How do we create containers mm-hmm. in, the, in the language of ritual? You know? And then I guess finally, just with the whole masculinity bit of it, because this is a big piece. Let's look at the Trumpers again. Let's look at, you know, a lot of this stuff is about masculinity. And it's about a perception of masculinity that is now so taxed and so challenged that it's like doing what it always did, which is it's going to go down in a hail of bullets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like somehow or another, I think that we got to create a space for us to actually be angry together and with one another. Mm. And I mean this like even cross racially. I don't know how it's done, but I think, you know, this is part of the whole conversation around reparations, like all the stuff. It's like somehow or another, we got to create a space where we can go into the historical trajectory that led us to this point and do it through ritual mm-hmm. and like hold each other through it through ritual. I got chills. I'm going all over the place, but <laughs> no, this is this is profound. I really, really appreciate this um, exploration. And you know what what struck me about what you said with this approaching the decade from essentially like a, a ritual alertness is you know what are the specific tools in a way that one can equip themselves with to be at the ready. You know, because those are very different tools than if one's stepping into a world, let's say, yeah, which is somewhat. Uh, anticipated, you know, or, or, or concrete, or, you know, if you can, if you can have a, oh yeah, it'll be like this. And so uh, this is how I prepare for this world, but that's not the world. uh, It's never really been the world, but it's certainly not the world we're stepping into this decade. And so from our conversation, you know, I'm, I'm finding these, these threads, these elements of mindfulness, for example, you know, as I would call that probably like a key, you know, key skill that is necessary for an an alertness, uh, a capability for this decade, Uh, embodiment, you know, that feels like another another key piece. You know, are we disconnected or are we actually tapped in? Can we listen, you know, to our own body, where it wants to go? You know, what does it need? Um, I see others of, yeah, ritual, the capacity to to understand ritual, you know, to, to what is a container, open and closing containers. Um, you know, alertness to the moment. What does the moment need as big forces are coming together and colliding, you know, with without a sense of where it might go, but the ability to say, okay, you know, being prepared for that in a way, not like um, 
what do they call them? You know, like the sort of apocalypse preparers, like, you know, beans in the bunkers. And preppers, all yeah. Yeah, yeah, preppers. That's not what I'm saying, right? Obviously, that I'm saying that there's a kind of active capacity, active skillfulness that, you know, we can actually discern, I mean, through this conversation even, what readiness actually looks like. And it's not waiting for something to happen. It's actually a kind of active skill skilling up. And yeah, um, yeah hearing it that way, I'm curious if anything else comes to you. Yeah, I actually really appreciate it. A lot of this is, is really clarifying. Um, you know, because I feel like I'm just reaching a point in my life where I'm like, I'm really like, oh, it's really starting to become about giving back. Mm. Like, like I really, I feel like the first half of your life is winding up and the second half is winding down mm. and winding down is spiraling out. And so I, in a way, I'm trying to collect all the lessons I've been learning and this conversation's helping me too in that. But like, so I think another one is some kind of experience and attention to narrative. Mm. One of the big struggles I feel like they were having in the United States right now and around the world is about narrative. Mm. And, and so attention to narrative and also the way in which imagination and narrative relate to each other. You know, how do we fertilize the narrative, the narratives that we work with, say, as Americans, quote, with fresh imaginations and imaginations that build on existing imaginations and then liberate them into new possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another one, I think, and I think we saw this really like the, the, I think a lot of the millennials are really have got this stuff down in a good way in the Occupy scene is working with different systems of communication and decision-making, you know, because then once you, yeah, you're your own archetypal character, but you've got to relate to a whole bunch of other arch archetypal characters. So what are these different processes for, yeah, making decisions and for circulating communication and power? Um, another one, which I think the university sh could really take up, and I don't quite see this yet, is the experimentation with systems. I mean, the university could really become a place where we are playing with and modeling systems, mm. you know? So when you come out to the world and you have these basic, you know, let's call them neurological skill sets of mindfulness and self-regulation and working with chaos and intensity, and then you have these social skillfulnesses of, uh, you know, various communication and decision-making modalities and then you have some experimentation or some skillfulness with, with constructing, altering, transforming systems. Mm -hmm. You know, because that's that's the other piece of all of this that's so. I mean, the the situation that I feel that we're in, in so much of the world right now is, it's Jesus's parable about the new wine and the old wineskins. Mm. You know, we have a lot of churning of new possibility. We have these new masculinities, new femininities. We've got people who are about to blaze gender out altogether. And, and still we're stuck in these old containers. We're stuck circulating money in the same ways. We're stuck circulating electricity in the same ways. We're stuck with a built environment that was built in the height of white supremacist America that replicates the outcomes of that. Mm. And so we, we, we will know that the new has reached the earth when the infrastructure, the circulation of currency is actually congruent with 
how we feel. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take a long time. But in the meantime, I just feel like as systems break down, we need to learn tools to like, I don't know, experiment with systems. And so that's super emergent for me. I don't know how to do that one yet. I'm just projecting with the tongue, you know? I really appreciate that. I mean, the task I feel for this generation or, or the, the generations marshaled now, you know, I've, as I reflected on the, you know, the 60s and the 70s and, and really this flowering of, of consciousness and awakening, right? And in many ways was a, an initial spiral towards another way you know, um, um, experimentation, you know, communes, all this stuff has been really, you know, it was edgy then, certainly. And yet, in some ways, you know, there's this line in, um, I think it was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, if you read that book, uh, where, yeah, there's such a brilliant line. I mean, you know, I, I remember just images from it, but this one just always hits me. He said something about um, you know, the Hunter S. Thompson, he's capturing the moment when sort of in the heyday, I think it might've been maybe mid sixties at that point. And he says, you know, we really felt like it was, it, we were, we were the vanguard, you know, we were changing things. We really felt like this was it. This was the moment. Mm-hmm. And he said, he drove out to the desert, uh, you know, one morning or afternoon, whatever it was. And the way he describes it in writing, is just so exquisite. He says, you know, as he looked out across the the sand, something like, you know, he could see or recognize where, the wave crested without breaching the top and mm. rolled back into the sea. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's just so perfectly captures that kind of like moment, that possibility that was such this surge of, you know, we're doing it. And then boom, you know, rolling back and, and really the heartbreak I feel from the, a lot of the boomers, right? Mm-hmm. That, that a lot of them won't necessarily admit to now or don't know actually how badly heartbroken they, they were from mm-hmm. not being the generation that did it, you know, and sort of conformed again. And here we are, you know, another ring on the spiral. And I would say a lot of what, you know, was initially instigated then, you know, has come back around again, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, the moment has returned again as this uh, momentum has built to real possibility, you know, of, of something, you know, not, not certain, of, of course, right? But but real possibility, I think, has emerged again. If there's a capacity to see, you know, it's not like, oh, they failed. So, you know, forget them. It's over to us now. It's actually like, okay, yeah, thanks for doing what you did now. And now we need you, you know, because I also see, you know, you said uh, about the uh, capacity to, to, I mean, ride chaos is like we need people that, you know, have seen things in certain ways before, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're sort of there before. We're like, oh, I remember this. You know, I actually, I hear that a lot of boomers when, you know, I invite them to different spaces of, of group process and, you know, shadow work and all. They're like, oh, I remember this, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, 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 because, you know, we're, we're here again and we need you. You know, it's like that sense. We need you. And if their work was this initial flowering of, you know, consciousness and breaking everything down, uh, I think this generation is to crystallize that consciousness in structures. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is what you've said, they, they, that we need to actually have that stories of our institutions and our systems embody that story, you know, that more beautiful world. And, you know, I don't know how to do it either. You know, to be honest, I, I feel like my work has been this uh, trying to plant these seeds, you know, of possibility, you know, amplifying mm-hmm. the signal of, mm-hmm. of, of those, you know, emergent creatives that are doing it, you know, the activist movements, you know, Occupy, all these, you know, amplifying the signal. So, like, in these liquid states, you know, when there's a lot more uncertainty of, like, you know, what are we going to do, that they're much more at the ready, you know? And, and, and so I really love the journey of our conversation today. Mm. Yeah, thank you. 
Never, mm-hmm. you know, don't know. I don't know. I didn't know. I was like, I didn't know I was going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps emergence is among us right now. So. Mm. Is there anything you'd love to touch on, you know, before we close our conversation today, Ramon? I guess one thought I was having as you were speaking is that maybe we should look at this as at least a seven generational project. Hmm. If we start our count with the boomers, now you're Gen Z, that's four. We still got three left to go. So it's a, it's a long, it's a long game that we're playing, Hmm. you know, and I think we tell the youth a lot of times that it's up to them to create the change. And that's just, it's just not fair. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 up to everybody who's alive from their seat and time mm-hmm. to do what they can and to to work with the new generations, the older generations from whatever their seat and time is mm-hmm. and from mm-hmm. whatever their place. You know, and and I and I think another one of the like the the uh, of everything, like I think we can't say what the earth is going to do. It's going to, I think it's just going to get tougher and tougher mm-hmm. ecologically. I think we all know that. Mm-hmm. And now it's here. Mm-hmm. But I really feel like the main revolution, the big thing that we're all trying to do is it's really just about healing. It's about putting ourselves back together, you know, and like, you know, we got all these violent image hero masculine images out there and it's like really we just need like like if you're a father in the best case scenario your job is to really just protect the kids and and see to it that the kids grow up well and that they have what they need and i feel like that's what what men and really all of us can do is just like protect one another Mm. and not like in the sense of i'm going to fight off the danger but just in the sense of like you know, just to help each other deal with the danger that comes up between us and the danger that we feel of just being who we are and feeling explosive and crazy and like no one's listening. Mm. You know, it's like how do we just kind of protect one another and respect one another and 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 really yeah, foster a, a revolution of, of, of healing. Or just like yeah, I don't know. Mm. So that's what I see. I see a lot of students come in and they're hurt. And it's like, okay, I have the job of imparting a certain amount of information and skills, but really it's just about helping them put themselves back together again. Well, thank you so much for our time today, Ramon. Really, really appreciate our conversation. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more.